Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, March 3rd, uh, 2024, and we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing resistance against the Israeli occupation of Gaza. The South African government has accused the Western states of being complicit in the genocide taking place in Palestine. Ethiopia and Tanzania have signed a trade agreement, and the Caribbean nation of Haiti is facing the threat of yet another coup. In the second and third hours, we move forward in our International Women's History Month programming, examining the role of African women in the Civil War and in the overall labor force uh, under enslavement uh, during the Civil War and post-Civil War periods. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll move into our musical interlude uh, with the Um Kaltum Orchestra. Uh, this is a live concert uh, Broadcast uh, in 1968. Let's listen in. Thank <laughs> you. 
Thank you. 
and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. And uh, we just heard uh, the music of uh, Um Kaltoum and her orchestra uh, from a live concert in 1968. And uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire uh, report. And, of course, the Pan-African Newswire is available uh, 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. And uh, we'll give you information on how uh, you can log in uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with the current uh, situation in Gaza. On the 149th day of the war, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza continues to ambush uh, Israel's occupation forces and fire rockets at Israeli military sites and settlements. Al Mahadeen correspondent in Gaza reported earlier today that Palestinian resistance fighters are engaged in fierce confrontations on the battlefront uh, with the raiding Israeli occupation forces, especially in the city of Yunis, south of the Gaza Strip, amid uh, intense uh, Israeli shelling. Uh, our correspondent, meaning Al Mahadeen TV uh, confirmed that the resistance is maintaining its combat positions in Khan Yunus and the Al Zatun neighborhood southeast of Gaza City as part of its, of its continuous response to the Israeli aggression within the Al Aqsa flood battle. Al Qasim brigades, the military wing of Hamas, captured two Israeli Skylark drones in the Al Zatun neighborhood in Gaza City and released footage documenting the operation. On his part, Al-Quds Brigade, the military wing of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement, announced that its resistance fighters carried out several operations in the Al-Zatun neighborhood. Al-Quds Brigade said its fighters shelled an Israeli military gathering with more shells, engaged in confrontations with invading Israeli forces using machine guns, and hit a building where an Israeli force uh, was holed up uh, with the 107th model guided missile, causing casualties among the force. The brigade fighters also bombarded a gathering of Israeli occupation forces northwest of the town of Bet Lahia uh, in northern Gaza with mortar shells and hit the positions of Israeli vehicles and soldiers in the Nasserim advanced axis south of Gaza City. The brigades claim responsibility for the engaging two Israeli military vehicles with rocket-propelled grenades, RPG shells, and detonating a booby-trapped building where an Israeli force was entrenched in the town of Abbasan al-Kabir, east of Khan Yunus, resulting in casualties among the force. Al-Mujahideen brigades, the military wing of the Palestinian al-Mujahideen movement, bombed Israeli forces gathering south of the Al-Zatun neighborhood with heavy caliber mortar shells. The resistance fighters also bombed the supply routes of the Israeli occupation military south of Al-Zatun neighborhood uh, with 107 model missiles confirming direct hits. Meanwhile, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade hit concentrations of Israeli 
soldiers and military vehicles in the Nazarim advancement axis south of Gaza City with uh, the mortar shells. Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade announced that its fighters uh, sniped an Israeli soldier in the battle axis south of the Al-Zatun neighborhood and ambushed an Israeli infantry force using machine guns and anti-personnel weapons inflicting casualties among the force. Martyrs Abu Ali Mustafa Brigade, the military wing of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, announced that its fighters continued to resist the incursions of the Israeli forces uh, in a battlefront and are inflicting heavy losses among the raiding forces and capturing their military equipment. Abu Ali Mustafa Brigade said its fighters bombed the mobilization of any enemy forces south of the Al-Zatun neighborhood with heavy caliber mortar shells in response to the enemy's crimes against civilians. Now, in a related context, the National Resistance Brigade Martyrs Omar al-Qasim forces, the military wing of the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, launched heavy caliber mortar shells at the Israeli Kisifim military site east of central area of Gaza. Al-Nasser Salah al-Din Brigade, the military wing of the Popular Resistance Committees, released footage of its fighters shelling uh, the Israeli sites of Kisufim and Riem with salvos of rockets. In a joint operation, Al-Mujahideen Brigade and the Martyrs Abu Ali Mustafa Brigades announced shelling the Israeli Beira settlement and the Israeli Occupation Military Command Headquarters in the Reim settlement with rocket barrages. As of earlier today, the Israeli Occupation Military has officially acknowledged that 587 of its troops have been killed since October 7th, including 247 during the ground battles with the Palestinian resistance in the Gaza Strip. In other news, uh, communications advisor Mohammed Faisal Daji expressed to Anadolu News Agency that Western nations should not speak about human rights. Mohammed Faisal Daji, a communication strategist and former media director for the South African government, announced the Western positions on Israeli assaults on Gaza, accusing them of being complicit in the genocide of Palestinians. Speaking at Anadolu Daji, expressed that the West has forfeited the right to preach of the preach to the world about human rights, oppression, and freedom. Regarding his country's application to the International Court of Justice, Daji stressed the necessity of recognizing that South Africa's foreign policy is founded on human rights, justice, and freedom. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In East Africa, Tanzania, and Ethiopia, just this last past week, signed bilateral agreements targeting agriculture, trade, energy, and air transport, and aviation technology exchange. Tanzanian President Samia Suluhu Hassan and the visiting Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed uh, on Friday witnessed the signing of agreements strengthening trade between the two countries. Ministry of Foreign Affairs and East African Cooperation said on Friday that the two leaders agreed to deepen trade and bilateral relations that would create new opportunities for the trade between uh, uh, Tanzania with a population of over 61 million and Ethiopia with a population of more than 100 million people. 
With that, we'll conclude our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you would like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Sunday, uh, May 3rd, uh, 2024, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
music uh, of uh, Judy Clay uh, with the track entitled Private Number. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcaster, special edition of our program. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Women's History Month programming. Uh, here is a discussion on African-American women's history, threshold of liberty, uh, dealing with the role of African-American women uh, during the Civil War. Let's listen in. You're listening to the Good panel. afternoon, everyone. My name is Andre Gillespie. I'm the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute. And on behalf of the staff and the visiting fellows of JWJI, I'd like to welcome you to today's Race and Difference Colloquium. Uh, on behalf of Emory University, um, I would also like to acknowledge uh, the Muscogee Creek people who lived, worked, and produced knowledge on and nurtured the land where Emory's Oxford and Atlanta campuses are now. In 1821, 15 years before Emory's founding, the Muscogee were forced to relinquish this land. We recognize the sustained oppression, land dispossession, and involuntary removals of the Muscogee and Cherokee peoples from Georgia and the Southeast. Emory and the James Walton Johnson Institute seek to honor the Muscogee Nation and other indigenous caretakers of the land by humbly seeking knowledge of their histories and committing to respectful stewardship of the land You'll give me one quick moment. I do have a couple of announcements as well um, to share. So first, um, I want to um, acknowledge um, our uh, newest class of Jim Zoll and Johnson Institute undergraduate fellows. These are seniors in Emory College who are writing honors theses on topics related to race and difference. And so this year's fellows are in place and excited um, and, and ready to learn. So I hope they can learn more about them this year. Our fellows this year are Haley Greenstone um, in sociology, Annie Lee in history, Amon Pearson in comparative literature, and Stephanie Zhang in um, philosophy. In addition, this is a, a busy week. Um, I'm going backwards. Um, our first public dialogue in race and difference session will be held uh, this week. Um, it's going to be on Thursday on Zoom. For more information, please look at our website. Our theme for this roundtable discussion is going to be the twin pandemics, COVID and racism. We've put together a wonderful panel of uh, scholars from Emory and from around the country to talk about uh, the racial justice fights uh, that have especially sort of hit their apex within the last year and a half, and as well as the relationship between health disparities and the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. So today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Tamika Nunnally to speak to us. Dr. Nunnally is Associate Professor of History at Cornell University. Her research and teaching interests include African-American women's history, slavery, gender, 19th century legal history, digital history, and the American Civil War. Today, she's going to be talking about her book, At the Threshold of Liberty, Women, Slavery, and Shifting Identities in Washington, D.C., which was published earlier this year by UNC Press. This book examines women's, African-American women's strategies of self-definition in the context of slavery, fugitivity, courts, schools, streets, and government during the Civil War era. Dr. Nunley has published articles and reviews in the Journal of Southern History, the William & Mary Quarterly, the Journal of American Legal History, and the Journal of the Civil War Era. In addition to being a lifetime member of the Association of Black Women Historians, Nunley serves on the editorial board of Civil War History 
and on committees for the Society uh, for Historians in the early, of the Early American Republic, the Society of Civil War Historians, and Southern Historical Association. Her current book project is entitled The Demands of Justice, Enslaved Women, Capital Crime, and Clemency in Early Virginia, 1705 to 1865. Her work has been supported by the Andrew Mellon and Woodrow Wilson Foundations, as well as the American Association of University Women. Dr. Nunley earned her undergraduate degree from Miami University um, and her doctoral degree from the University of Virginia. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Tamika Nunley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to go ahead and share screen. Um, today I'm going to discuss my book and I'm going to kind of provide a bit of a sampling of what is happening throughout the book. And um, I'm going to start off with an anecdote that begins the book um, because I think it's a really good example of, of self-making. So on August 16th, 1821, Thomas Tenji, Commandant of the Navy Yard, placed a notice in the Daily National Intelligencer of a slave's escape in Washington, D.C. Earlier that week, Surrey, an enslaved woman he owned, walked out of the kitchen in his residence and beyond the wharf into the streets of the district and did not return. By the time the advertisement appeared, Surrey had become Suki Dean, a fugitive within the nation's capital and a free black woman available for hire. Tinji explained in the notice that Surrey had changed her name to Suki and that she most likely continued to seek employment as a domestic with a local family, but she soon learned that Tinji had discovered her whereabouts. At this point, Suki Dean disappeared from the available historical record, and yet Suri was henceforth Suki, the person, person she had envisioned, fashioned, and named prior to her escape that summer of 1821. According to census records, Suki had been with the Tenji household since 1790 when the family resided in Philadelphia. By the time of her escape, she was one of six enslaved people forced to serve the Tenji household. Suki's frequent appearance in family correspondence reveals a history of everyday defiance and, more specifically, her plans to wield her own authority over her life. Her escape was the culmination of that history. Tenji's wife, Margaret, had threatened to sell her just before they moved to Washington. According to Margaret, Suki declared her opposition to the move, stating, I won't go anywhere but where I chose a master, and you cannot oblige me. Suki stayed with the family for 20 more years before she decided to leave. Perhaps she decided to remain for 20 years because she was also raising children. We know that Suki bore children within the Tenji household. We know very little, however, about their lives, the conditions of life and work in the household, their social networks within the district, or whether or not they remained with the Tenjis after Suki left. What is clear is that their mother maintained very specific ideas about her desired life, identity, and work environment. Suki's own assertion about her choices and obligations developed decades before she escaped. At the Threshold of Liberty tells the story of women like Suki, African-American women and girls who made extraordinary claims to liberty in the nation's capital in ways that reveal how they dare to imagine different lives. From the founding of the capital to the American Civil War, a history emerges of black women and girls, enslaved and free, who developed their own ideas about liberty and accordingly traditions of self-definition that help us understand how they survived and lived in a slaveholding republic. They were driven by the ideals of their time and expressed their desires to govern their own lives without the oversight, force, and violence administered by others. 
The experiences that unfold show that black women adapted and shifted their lives and the lives of others in the face of unpredictability. Over the course of the first half of the 19th century, black women disentangled themselves from bondage using their understanding of the legal, geographic, and social scaffolds that made slavery possible. Thus, struggles for liberty appeared in various forms and under different conditions in the lives of black women in DC. Women and girls who were legally free navigated social norms organized by black codes and social, local custom, while enslaved women and girls were expected to observe slave codes and respond to the demands of slaveholders. The claims they made, the women they became, the actions they took, and the lives they created made possible the black Washington that became an incubator of equality and citizenship. Slavery shaped the social dynamics of early Washington in important ways. First, the placement of the capital on the Potomac ensured that a culture of Chesapeake slavery formed the legal and social frameworks of the city. Carved out of the oldest slaveholding states in the country, Washington adopted the laws and customs of Maryland and Virginia at its inception. As the population expanded and the capital became more developed with businesses, residences, industries, and the work of government, the district transitioned from village to southern city. Early investment in enslaved women's labor served the purposes of increasing investment in the city and developing social relations in the nation's capital. The symbolic meanings tied to the capital linked the early republic to ideals of liberty and egalitarianism, but an emerging class structure demonstrated that the aspirations of the privileged relied on the subjugation of others. African-American women in early Washington understood that the stratification of society often relegated them to the bottom and that their labor subsequently buoyed the aims of a burgeoning genteel class. Margaret Bayard Smith, wife of the founder of the National Intelligencer and Washington Advertiser Samuel Smith, mingled among the upper crust of Washington society. She was a prominent figure in her own right and authored a number of publications featured in journals that boasted a national readership. Historians rely on the stories and letters that she penned about life in the new capital, but the fact that she relied on a number of enslaved people and servants to run her household is less obvious in Washington histories. In a letter to a friend, she related that, quote, I have had a fine little girl of five years old bound out to me by Dr. Willis. She noted that, quote, while I work, she plays with Julia and keeps her quiet. She is gay, good-tempered, and well-behaved. Julia is extremely fond of her and she of Julia, and I hope to have some comfort in her, end quote. Enslaved girls learned at an early age how to navigate the expectations of upper-class white families. The demands on black girls, white entitlement to deference, and the expectations of positive dispositions indicate ways that slavery shaped their understandings of labor and power. For the five-year-old girl, her gay and good-tempered behavior was not always a matter of choice, but a negotiation she learned early on in her socialization. Washington society took shape on the foundations of the racial and gendered power dynamics of slavery as leading women purchased, hired, and sold enslaved women. In Washington, enslaved women's experiences and relationships exposed them to information about various avenues of resistance. Wherever they went, they navigated the city with an accumulated knowledge of the homes, churches, businesses, and people that populated Washington. Their mobility, albeit circumscribed by slave codes, shaped their comprehension of the advantages and risks associated with escape in the area.
Just before dawn on December 19, 1815, enslaved people on F Street near a local tavern owned by George Miller. Taverns located in the Federal Village often functioned as sites of slave auctions and markets that marked the beginning of a grueling trek along key trade routes headed towards the Deep South. The Chesapeake slave trade geographically forced the enslaved further south and west, an intense journey that funneled scores of enslaved and abducted African Americans from Washington. Before the sun appeared on that wintry morning, an enslaved woman named Anne jumped out of a three-story window just above the designated starting point of the slave coffle. The men leading the coffle, however, would have to leave without her. Anne was in no condition to walk with both arms broken and a shattered spine. Quote, I didn't want to go and I jumped out of the window, but I am sorry that I did it, she reportedly confessed. Anne not only lamented the fact that she suffered life-altering injuries, but she remained separated from her husband and children who were sold to the Carolinas. At the risk of her life and in a moment just before the traders prepared to chain her to the other enslaved people in the coffle, she saw only one way out. Anne used what limited power black women possessed at a time when their fate was often determined by a powerful law and the white men and women who employed it. This form of physical intervention changed the course of their lives in a split second and in other instances following years of contemplating an existence beyond chains. Their actions show that the relationships torn apart by the domestic slave trade constituted a vital source of identity and belonging amidst the day-to-day -day drudgery of bondage. These bonds gave life in a place where death and separation loomed as an ever-present possibility. At a time when the nation embarked on a revolutionary political project, enslaved women in Washington envisioned lives that were not defined by the laws of slavery. Many black women during the early history of the Capitol, however, remained enslaved, even as white Americans expressed discomfort and embarrassment when they witnessed coffles of enslaved people walking past or acts of violence inflicted upon them. Anne's daughters were forced into the very coffle that awaited her, into the hands of the quote-unquote Georgia man or the slave trader known among the enslaved as the notorious agent of their sale, separation, and subjection to violence. The owner of the tavern purchased Anne, and she later gave birth to more children with her husband. Although testimonies indicate that Miller, the owner of the tavern, permitted Anne to go about the city freely, legally she remained enslaved. She petitioned the court for her freedom with legal assistance from Francis Scott Key, a local attorney and author of The Star-Spangled Banner. The litigation of Anne's freedom suit also reminds us that more flexible terms of servitude did not change her desires to be free. Key played an important role in enslaved women's local freedom suits. Although he freed seven enslaved persons he owned upon his death, eight remained in bondage. He embodied the contradictions that locals wrestled with as he continued to benefit from slavery while also arguing that free persons possessed the right to the legal protection of their freedom. Slavery itself, however, remained intact. The decades following Anne's escape signaled the emergence of the capital as the heart of human trafficking, where enslaved people were collected from the Chesapeake, incarcerated in the capital, and sent further south. More cries could be heard from the growing presence of desolate dens of bondage that appeared throughout the National Mall and along prominent blocks of the city. Indeed, slave trading firms appeared more organized and efficient than ever, and the District of Columbia offered a number of opportunities for participants involved in the business of buying and selling enslaved and abducted black persons. 
Firms became increasingly vital to life in Washington with establishments located along the National Mall and near the Capitol. Enslaved people were marched to Center Market on Pennsylvania Avenue and sold alongside goods and wares. Slave trader Joseph Neal placed an advertisement where he promised to pay, quote, the highest prices in cash for 150 likely young Negroes of both sexes, families included, end quote. When they were not on the auction block, they were confined in slave pens located in Washington, such as Roby's Tavern. Adjacent to Roby's, a pedestrian might spot an unassuming yellow building owned by William H. Williams, who funneled enslaved people into the infamous Yellow House just before they were forced to go to slave markets along the Mississippi River. Williams recommended that traders bring their enslaved cargo to the building at least a couple of days prior to the board, uh, prior to boarding the Tribune or the Unca. John Armfield placed a notice that stated, quote, servants are intended to be shipped and will at any time be received for safekeeping at 25 cents per day, end quote. Armfield's firm posted another advertisement that informed slave owners that the ship left the port every 30 days. In addition to providing information about scheduled departures, they hoped to fill those vessels with more enslaved people. The firm placed the following call, quote, persons having likely servants to dispose of will find it to be in their interest to give us a call, as we will give higher prices in cash than any other purchaser who is now or may hereafter come into this market, end quote. Hotels and taverns doubled as accommodations for guests, as well as reliable sites of confinement for slave traders in need of temporary quarters for enslaved people. The Southern Hotel was located at the end of King Street when the District of Columbia Territory included Alexandria. One advertisement placed by the hotel offered, quote, comfortable accommodations of travelers with particular provision for gentlemen from the Southern country and for the security and support of their servants, end quote. Lloyd's Tavern, as well as St. Charles Hotel, the United States Hotel, in the courtyards of the Decatur House, the Van Ness House, and the Calorama Home, accommodated slave traders with business ties to Georgia, New Orleans, and slave markets along the Mississippi. The emergence of more professionalized trading firms and the ongoing activity of slave catchers who hunted fugitives and abducted black residents made the district a precarious site of liberty. The legal climate of Washington appeared increasingly hostile to African Americans by the 1830s. Drawing upon earlier laws established in the Chesapeake, slave codes and court cases were adjudicated in ways to ensure that black people were in no position to undermine slavery and the racial hierarchies that shaped social relations in the city. Enslaved women, however, discovered ways around these barriers. They demonstrated an awareness of opportunities for flight, as well as the legal risks associated with fugitivity in the region. This web of legal knowledge not only appears evident in the transportation of fugitive women, but the rumor mill that alerted them of forthcoming opportunities for flight. The escape of 77 enslaved people on the schooner Pearl appears regularly in histories of Washington. The incident not only offers insights into the most notable escape in attempt history, but the ways that black women navigated the opportunities for self-making through collective resistance. The daughters of an enslaved mother and a free father, Mary and Emily Edmondson, were two of Paul and Amelia Edmondson's 14 children. Paul was manumitted by his former owner and by, quote, economy, industry, and thrift, end quote, obtained and maintained 40 acres of land. One of the Edmondson sons, Hamilton, had already been sold south, and five of their daughters were manumitted through purchase and resided in Washington. 
When she was 15 years old, Mary, along with her sister Emily, were hired out by their owner, Rebecca Culver, to work for wealthy families in the district. They likely found moments to interact with their free siblings and soon discovered plans for an escape on the Pearl. Mary and Emily, along with 71 other enslaved women, men, and children, boarded the, boarded the Pearl on April 15, 1848. On the docks of the nation's capital, they joined the largest documented slave escape in American history. Mary and Emily's stories of self-making were tied up in the efforts of others who tried to become free. It all began with Daniel and Mary Bell. Daniel earned enough to purchase his freedom, but his family remained enslaved. Mary Bell and her children were freed according to the terms of their former owner's will. But when they attempted to claim their freedom, the wife of their former owner contested the manumission terms of the will. When the courts failed to produce the desired results, African-Americans did not shy away from extra-legal strategies to become free. With no other option than to arrange an escape, Daniel Bell covered the necessary expenses for Daniel Drayton to secure a vessel that would take them north. The Edmondson sisters also joined the escape because they recently learned that they might be sold off as prostitutes in the fancy girl trade in New Orleans. Their experiences with being marketed as both sexualized and fetishized human property marked many of the ways enslaved girls and women were commodified as potential prostitutes or high-end servants in the domestic slave market. Word of mouth reached the girls in time to evade these projections. As one news account noted, someone, quote, communicated the opportunity to them and to several others. They communicated it to their friends. And when Captain Drayton came to sail, instead of having seven passengers, as he had expected, he had 10 times that number, end quote. These were the networks of navigation, enslaved and free African-Americans, local white allies, and Northern friends willing to spread the word, risk discovery, and finance the excursion along the Atlantic seaboard. Networks of communication among enslaved and free black people created a tradition of anti-slavery activism in the capital. Black people such as Daniel Bell and Paul Jennings, a formerly enslaved servant owned by President James Madison, spread the word, informing black locals of the organized attempt on the Pearl. White supporters such as Garrett Smith, William Chaplin, and the ship crew Daniel Drayton, Edward Sayers, and Chester English secured a vessel for their transport. The planned route took the schooner 100 miles down the Potomac River and then 125 miles north on the Chesapeake Bay towards the free state of New Jersey. The morning after their departure, reports of missing fugitives erupted in the city. According to John Painter, an enslaved man named Judson Diggs furnished the mob of outraged slave owners with information about the plans for escape. A group of angry slaveholders sailed out on the Salem to find the vessel near Point Lookout in Maryland. Emily and Mary and the 75 enslaved people on board the Pearl were imprisoned, and Daniel Drayton, Edward Sayers, and Chester English were tried in the criminal court of the District of Columbia for stealing. English was dismissed largely because he worked as the hired cook and help on the crew and claimed that he didn't completely understand the purpose and intent of the voyage. Sayers was acquitted on two counts of slave stealing, but having incurred fines and legal fees amounting to over $10,000, had to remain in jail. Drayton pled guilty for the transportation of slaves outside of the district and was convicted on two counts of slave stealing. Drayton and Sayers were imprisoned due to the hefty fines and legal fees they incurred while on trial, but were later granted a pardon from President Fillmore at the endorsement of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. 
Slave traders confined the Edmondson siblings at a slave pen in Alexandria in preparation for the voyage to the slave markets in New Orleans. Traders sold their brother Samuel Edmondson in New Orleans, but the remaining siblings ended up returning to Baltimore as a result of a yellow fever outbreak. Philanthropic efforts led to the purchase of Richard Edmondson, who reunited with his wife and children in Baltimore. The slave trading firm undoubtedly regarded sisters Mary and Emily as too lucrative an opportunity to pass on. They held the potential to generate a handsome profit if they sold in the fancy girl trade in New Orleans. If the fancy girl trade did not attract buyers, they certainly retained their value as potential servants in some of the wealthier homes of Louisiana. In the meantime, the two sisters were forced to labor as washerwomen and kept in the local prison during the hours in which they were not employed at work. Persistence from their father eventually led to an arrangement with the firm that allowed Paul Edmondson to purchase his daughters at the impressive sum of $2,250. On November 4, 1848, the Edmondson sisters traveled to New York, and with the assistance of the Beecher family, they attended the young ladies' preparatory school at Oberlin College. At Oberlin, they began the process of self-making as legally free young women. Education offered both social and economic mobility in preparation for possible careers in teaching. The Edmondson sisters traveled throughout the North to attend abolitionist rallies and protest the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Anti-slavery activism became an important aspect of their new world as free women. But for one of them, the advent of a new season quickly came to an abrupt end. In 1853, after having survived the dramatic developments of the Pearl, Mary died of tuberculosis at the age of 20. Her death led Emily to return to Washington, where she worked with a school for African-American girls and married her husband, Larkin Johnson. They lived in Anacostia, where they became founders of the Hillsdale community and retained close ties to Frederick Douglass. From the founding of the Capitol, black and white Washingtonians began the work of building a robust set of civic, of religious, civic, and educational institutions. The vibrant African-American institutions they created made Washington an attractive place for black migration from other southern states. This was of tremendous importance to black women. Free black women and girls faced limited access to economic and social mobility, but an education opened up possibilities for a vocation in teaching and participation in social reform. In Washington schools, schools were places were spaces in which black girls explored their own ideas, opinions, and values, not only about themselves, but the worlds in which they lived. In their learning, they were steeped in literature, science, theology, reform, and the heated political debates of the 1850s. In Mertilla Minor School for Colored Girls, one student, Marietta Hill, was particularly engrossed in the political affairs of the Union. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which allowed those who settled in the territory to decide whether or not to permit slavery there. Girls like Marietta Hill remained attuned to the latest political debates about slavery, understanding that the fate of the institution shaped the contours of their own experiences in Washington. Hill shared that, quote, sometimes a dark cloud seems to overshadow me, and since the Nebraska bill has passed, the cloud appears thicker and darker. And I say, will slavery forever exist, end quote. Slavery seemed to meet no end as Congress went back and forth with one compromise after the next. As long as slavery existed and African Americans lacked equal rights to citizenship, their lives remained circumscribed by severe legal and social parameters. But her resolve remained steadfast and she declared, quote, it shall cease, it shall and must be abolished. 
I think there will be bloodshed before all can be free. And the question is, are we willing to give up our lives for freedom? Will we die for our people? We may say yes, end quote. Marietta's assessment of the political climate was eerily prophetic. Bloodshed, not just in Kansas, but on Harper's Ferry and eventually Fort Sumter, would usher the Union into war. In the meantime, Minor provided an intellectual environment that made space for the girls to share their thoughts and frustrations as well as their candid opinions about the national state of affairs. Emily Edmondson joined the Minor School as a teacher and likely mentored many of these young girls. They offered critiques that ranged from political events to everyday insults they experienced in Washington. Minor hoped to provide the kind of education that positioned the girls to articulate claims to equality in the capital. Making education accessible to black girls stirred social and political anxieties among white locals concerned with the future of the country. Regarding this school for black girls, the mayor of Washington, Walter Lennox, pleaded that, quote, we cannot tolerate an influence in our midst, which will not only constantly disturb the repose and prosperity of our own community and of the country, but may even rend asunder the union itself, end quote. He appealed to the local government to wield their influence to undermine the work of minor school. Lennox implored that, quote, such a protest it is the duty of our corporate authorities to make. Its beneficent effect may be to persuade the supporters of this scheme to abandon its further prosecution, end quote. Lennox claimed that minor and her students left white residents no choice, warning, quote, the responsibility will be with those who by their own wanton acts of aggression make resistance a necessity and submission an impossibility, end quote. Thus, the mayor of Washington validated the violent responses of white mobs that the girls confronted on a daily basis. Minor school inspired violent retaliatory responses that involved racist and sexist epithets aimed at the girls. One white pedestrian balked at a group of the students and referred to them as impudent hussies, and demanded that the landlady turn out that N-word school or be mobbed, end quote. The man projected a sexualized and wayward representation of them in the broader public to justify their removal. Students' responses to local harassment do not appear in the existing record, but perhaps their thoughts remained in the purview of their private lives. Indeed, historian Darlene Clark Hind explained that the ways that 19th century black women embraced a culture of dissemblance where they protected their inner lives and reactions to sexualized insults. These girls most likely deployed a number of strategies for survival, many exhibited by African-American women within their respective communities. Sources allow us to see that students took seriously the work of learning and regarded such efforts as an indictment of the, of the society that deprived them of the basic privileges afforded their white counterparts. When lectured by the white wife of a clergyman on the importance of being educated according to one's social status, one student, Lizzie, responded, quote, I would rather be learned than be contented and be ignorant. I will be learned. I must be learned. I would not ask this as colored people should not enjoy every right as white people, end quote. Lizzie's commitment to education coalesced with her claims to citizenship. This inextricable connection between learning, enlightenment, and rights underlies the pedagogical project of the minor school. Minor hoped to provide the kind of education that positioned the girls to articulate claims of equality and citizenship in the capital. In a context where few girls exercised the privilege of attending private school, and most black girls were expected to serve at the pleasure of white families, the educational achievements of black girls challenged the racial and gender hierarchies of the district. Once they graduated, they made tremendous sacrifices to form their own classrooms. 
1857, Anne Washington, a graduate of Miner's School, opened a school nearby. Sources describe Washington as a woman of refinement with an excellent aptitude for teaching. She gained notoriety for the way she operated her school, quote, with a system and superior judgment, giving universal satisfaction, the number of her pupils being only limited by the size of her room, end quote. The room, located in her mother's home, speaks to the resourcefulness of black women teachers who did not have access to the philanthropic connections that Minor employed. Washington's mother was a washerwoman who made limited income in a labor economy that relegated black women to the bottom of the wage-earning spectrum. Sources offer that her mother, quote, a widow woman, is a laundress, and by her own labor has given her children good advantages, though she had no such advantages herself, end quote. The growth of the free African-American population meant that black women and girls increasingly contended with the limitations of liberty in the nation's capital. Indeed, they navigated social and economic challenges in different ways. Miners' girls were afforded opportunities to attend school, while some girls and women earned a living in the local entrepreneurial, sex, and leisure economies. At the beginning of the war, the Provost Marshal recorded 450 registered body houses, and the Evening Star reported 5,000 prostitutes working in Washington City alone, not including the 2,500 women in Georgetown and Alexandria who worked in the wartime sex economy. Although Alexandria retroceded from the district in 1846, the connections to the capital and the close geographic proximity still made prostitution networks within reach to Union soldiers in the capital. Of the overall number of prostitutes in the city, at least a third were characterized as, quote, streetwalkers of a character of unblushing indecency never known before in Washington, end quote. The women arrived in the capital from both southern cities as well as northern metropoles such as New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Poverty brought on by, brought on by the war presented challenges that led women to prostitution. The influx of African Americans meant an inflated job market and a large number of black women desperate to earn a living. Those looking for jobs, or simply eager for any source of income, food, and housing, looked to the burgeoning sex economy. The sex and leisure economy of the district converged and clashed with the Union military effort. Police arrested a soldier named Edwin Perry for, quote, associating with colored prostitutes in the fourth ward of the city, end quote. On September 12, 1862, Mary Ann Jackson, a quote-unquote colored nymph, was arrested by military authorities and, a brief, and served a brief stint in jail. Jackson, along with many other black women, were arrested particularly for their solicitations of soldiers during the Civil War. These women interacted intimately with members of the military, whether through transactions of sex, the selling of goods such as liquor, acts of theft, or through disciplinary policing. In this case, military authorities were not only charged with supervising regiments, but disciplining both soldiers and prostitutes to maintain order between the army and local civilians. The sex and leisure economy increased black women's interactions with the Union military and local officials as they visibly and boldly solicited clients near the city center. Black prostitutes repeatedly frequented the jail and court for their disruptive enterprises in the capital. Military encampments afforded black women opportunities to offer commercialized leisure, sex, and goods, or they might help themselves to the supplies and foodstuffs provided by the government. Accused of stealing military goods, police arrested three black prostitutes, Josephine Picton, Elizabeth Wilson, and Sarah Gonis, together for possessing property belonging to the military. Similarly, police arrested Annie Grant for robbing a drunken soldier of 50, 
50 cents. Black women prostitutes seized various opportunities for financial and material gain, capitalizing on the resources of the military and enlisted soldiers. These modes of improvisation meant that some women might resort to theft to avoid sexual encounters, or in instances where clients refused to pay. From police arrests to organized raids, black women emerged as participants in, the lo in local crime and vice. A register kept by officials featured 12 quote-unquote colored body houses with addresses that were difficult to decipher because of their location among hidden alley communities. Residential blocks in 19th century Washington typically included streets within the block that formed a T or H shape. More noticeable structures face outward towards the street, but behind the houses and buildings, inhabitants, particularly those associated with the quote-unquote lower classes, lived and congregated in the smaller configurations of the alleys. The alley streets typically measured 30 feet wide, and structures stood within much closer proximity to adjacent buildings. While solicitation occurred near Union military camps and along main thoroughfares with high foot traffic, the quarters in which sex and leisure took place existed beyond the prominent avenues and into the alleys where makeshift structures occupied by black inhabitants remained out of sight. For instance, Mrs. Seal Brown and Theodosia Herbert, Rebecca Gaunt, Sarah Wallace, and Josephine Webster appeared in the register with establishments located in the alleys. Union officials struggled to maintain oversight of the whereabouts of prostitutes because of the hidden geography of sex and leisure. Those engaged in underground economies and those seeking refuge during the war created an overlapping demographic crisis for the nation's capital. While entrepreneurial economies shaped the dynamics of improvisation and self-making of free women working in Washington, that same spirit of improvisation and self-making translated into the efforts of enslaved women who crossed the borders of the district and made direct appeals to the federal government. For bond women, emancipation and the prospects of new opportunities for self-making were on the horizon. On December 16, 1862, Emmeline Wedge filed petitions on behalf of herself and her two children and her sister Alice Thomas, who were all enslaved on the property belonging to Alexander McCormick. McCormick refused to take advantage of the compensation provision of the new law the year it took effect in Washington, D.C., and Emmeline saw an opportunity. He reluctantly appeared before the clerk of the court after receipt of a summons. According to court records, McCormick, quote, denied the constitutionality of the Emancipation Act and said that he would bide his time until it was declared unconstitutional, end quote. Besides, he was a citizen with rights to property, and why would anyone take seriously claims made by an enslaved woman? Just before his case was decided, McCormick reappeared before the clerk and commissioners of the district, and for the first time formally contended with Emmeline's liberty claims. In this case, emancipation threatened the property rights of slaveholders and excluded white residents more generally from any democratic processes that decided the fate of slavery in Washington. Ideas about liberty and bondage were inextricably tied to place and Washington was changing. African-American women like Wedge assumed a new role, not completely carved out for them, but with anticipation and even hope for what could be. Working in Wedge's favor was the fact that Congress abolished slavery in the District of Columbia in 1862. For black Washington, the years of waiting for Congress to exercise such power ended at the beginning of the Civil War in spite of arguments against the constitutionality of local emancipation. 
With the exodus of a strong contingent of Democrats from following Lincoln's election, the Republican-dominated legislative body passed the measure with votes at 29 to 13 in the Senate and 92 to 38 in the House. Although the bill passed by a significant margin, the opposing votes underscore an underlying truth about this era. Historically, white Americans expressed hostility toward the idea of black liberty in both antebellum and wartime shifts towards emancipation. Scholars have pointed to the rehearsals of gradual emancipations in the North and prevailing attitudes against racial equality. While many Americans embraced the prospect of ridding themselves of slavery, the manifestations of black women's self-making in times of emancipation placed them at odds with dissenters who expressed concerns over equality, quote-unquote amalgamation, and citizenship. This sentiment rang true for white locals in Washington. The Emancipation Bill made provisions for compensation to slaveholders to the tune of $300, along with a financial incentive set at $100 for former slaves to relocate to another country. Still, even as some African Americans entertained the possibility of colonization, they decisively charted their course in the Union and remained in the capital. Accordingly, this marked the moment that white locals in Washington dreaded most. It might appear that the struggle for liberty ended with local emancipation, but Washington was the citadel of the Union and would apply to those enslaved in the city in 1862, sent signals to enslaved people and slaveholders alike throughout the geographic region. For most of the country, slavery and the fugitive slave law prevailed, but slaveholders still felt threatened by what they saw happening in Washington. When Congress legally authorized the emancipation of a population of roughly 3,000 or so enslaved people, countless others took advantage of the measure. White Washingtonians braced themselves for a tidal wave of refugees. Black women, both refugees and recently freed, recognized an, an important opportunity. The facts of Emmeline Wedge's case revealed the unique geographic position of Washington and the neighboring Chesapeake counties as a distinctive geopolitical battleground over liberty during the Civil War. As an enslaved woman, Wedge challenged both the legal validity of her enslavement and forced McCormick to contend with her testimony against him. The Supplemental Act, passed in the summer of 1862, permitted enslaved women in the District of Columbia to testify against white men and women for the first time. Regarding the actual case, evidence showed that McCormick's farm was located along the border dividing the district from Maryland and that just one day after the Emancipation Act became law, he instructed the slaves to reside on the Maryland side of his property. According to the records of the Board of Commissioners, he built a small tenement for them on the Maryland side, while his main living quarters remained in the district, along with the cow pen and other buildings included on the homestead. While McCormick generally prohibited enslaved people from traveling to the district side of the property, it was proven that Alice was, quote, required to drive cattle from the pasture to the cow pen, which was located on the district side, end quote. Unidentified witnesses also testified that they had seen the women and children in McCormick's Washington home daily, and that for approximately seven or eight weeks, Emmeline and her family had resided in the district with an older man also bearing the last name Wedge, who was identified as the father of Emmeline's husband. The Board of Commissioners ultimately acknowledged Emmeline's right to claim freedom under the Emancipation Act of 1862. Emmeline's case is illuminating because, among other things, Emmeline's husband and father-in-law did not file the, the petition, but she instead took the initiative to make her own liberty claims. But this was not unusual. In her work on gender and the political dynamics of Reconstruction, 
Laura Edwards argues that, quote, African-American and common white women formed a loud, visible, and vigorous public presence both during and after the Civil War, end quote. Patriarchy did not always feature prominently in black women's quests for self-making or liberty. To the contrary, freed women in the moment of local emancipation filed numerous claims and complaints on behalf of themselves and members of their families, initiating the transition of entire families into liberty rather than wait on the authority of men to do so. Throughout the course of wartime emancipation, refugee women and freed women navigated the power dynamics that made liberty possible in order to secure it for themselves and their kin. Former bondwomen employed their knowledge of the geographic and political significance of Washington as they approached officials of the government to make their claims. These experiences were distinctive in how they transformed their own futures as well as the significance of the nation's capital as a site of liberty. For, liberty, for these women, liberty was the work of self-making. The legal and extra-legal steps they took to realize liberty set in motion an array of claims to their lives and labors that challenged their racial and gendered exclusion. The stories of these women do not fit into neat historiographical themes, but show the rather complicated and unanticipated directions in which their lives took shape. The experiences of black women offer insights into the ways that our assumptions prevent us from fully understanding the scope of liberty's reach and its deficiencies. We risk forgetting that these women thought about this idea repeatedly, even as they imagined, washed, cried, ironed, hummed, cooked, laughed, nursed, and suffered. For centuries, the liberation struggle spanning generations and reaching back before the country's founding shaped the Black American experience. The contagious yearning for liberty that shaped the hopes of millions did not simply appear because a government or society allowed it to. Furthermore, the tensions created by those deprived of it play an equally important role to the manifestations of liberty in the nation. This history of black women tells a story about the obstacles that come with the ways that slavery, race, and gender posed barriers to liberty and the manner in which black women and girls in Washington responded. Liberty, then, remained an ongoing work in progress. Thank you. Thank you very much for a great talk. Um, now is our time for a Q&A. Um, if you are new to the colloquium, we can use the Q&A function in the Zoom webinar feature to allow us to um, ask questions, and I'll just read your question to Professor Nunley. So our first question is from Edgar Randolph, who asks, could you speak to the need to be rational and intelligent in order to use networks of navigation rather than emotional or feeling? How is Washington both a place of opportunity as well as danger? And uh, what were enslaved and abducted black people in Washington? Um, so I'll start with the last one. Um, enslaved people were people who were legally enslaved and abducted um, were um, abducted persons were persons who were legally free, but who were still um, funneled into the domestic slave trade. Um, and so I, of course, you know, enslaved people are, are all abducted, right? And so using that specific term is really just to accommodate the legal definitions of that time, but not, not to sort of uh, distinguish enslaved people from being abducted themselves. Um, and in terms of your question about um, rational and, and intelligent, um, I think that um, I, I don't talk a lot about um, 
enslaved women being um, rational because I, I think that gets into some epistemological territory where you have to be specific about who gets to define what is rational. Um, but I do think that um, they are purveyors of knowledge um, in ways that are really important uh, and, and really decisive in how they approach their strategies for survival um, and, and self-making. I think that feelings, intelligence, knowledge, all of those things, emotions, all play into the decisions of these women to um, embark on the journey that they've created, right, and that they've decided to take. Um, and it looks different, you know, for other for other women, um, but it just depends on the context. Some women, right, are violently pursued. Um, by certain enslavers um, in ways that cause them to escape without ever having to plan that escape, right? But then there are some who, you know, contemplate it, you know, over many, many years and, and decide to act upon it. Thank you. Are there other questions? I don't know if this extends beyond the period in which you study. Mm -hmm. um, but how does the agency that you see in the people that you're studying manifest uh, post-emancipation? So how are your subjects uh, uh, contributing to, 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 to black life in D.C. and sort of using some of the skills that they have kind of beyond, uh, beyond what you were able to share with us today? You know, I think um, I, don't, I don't really go past um, the Civil War, but if I were to think about the immediate you know, um, post-D.C. emancipation moment, I think that there are an array of responses. You know, first there's the woman on the cover of the book, Elizabeth Keckley, who um, organizes women at church at 15th Street, you know, and, and they're, you know, gathering funds, gathering resources to support um, the refugee um, women, men, children um, who are coming into the capital. And so I think that the instinct to organize and to mobilize resources is very much present. And I think that has less to do with post-emancipation. It has more to do with the kinds of organizing that black women were doing um, well at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, so in some ways, they rose to the to an occasion that they, they were hoping would would happen, right, it would, uh, would manifest. Um, but those um, that those institutional frameworks for organizing were already put in place in D.C., which makes D.C. a really fascinating place, right? Because they're putting the they're creating these institutions at a time where um, D.C. is becoming, you know, really important place for the domestic slave trade. Um, and then also, if you're thinking about um, refugee women, um, what I think is really interesting is that once it becomes clear that the Emancipation Act is passed. Um, that they feel as though they have a direct relationship with the government now, right? And so this, it's this very interesting political interpretation of the social contract. Um, and so they make their way to the nation's capital um, because they expect to be able to get a hold of the president or get a hold of the government, right? Um, whatever the government might look like, you know, whether it's the Board of Commissioners or, you know, eventually later in the war, um, the um, the Freedmen's Bureau right after the war. Um, and so they look for formal channels um, to begin to articulate, you know, um, their claims and to secure um, their own freedom and the freedom of loved ones. Um, they come up against the courts as well um, because many of the um, slaveholders in the Chesapeake are um, making claims to their children. 
Um, they're claiming that these children are orphans, right, or that their parents are not uh, equipped to be able to parent them. Um, and so they're coming up against the courts as well. And so I find what I found surprising was just um, just that kind of that push to um, make a direct sort of uh, line between themselves and the government to establish that relationship more formally was something that was important to um, to people, regardless of you know where they were prior to the war. You know, if they weren't Elizabeth Keckley and they were you know formerly enslaved woman coming in from Virginia, the instinct was to get to D.C. right and um, to get connected. Um, but then there are some folks who actually um, go into the sex and leisure economy. They go into these underground economies because they need to eat, right? And they need to find a place to lay their heads. Um, and so I think um, the earlier question talked about Washington, D.C. as a site of danger and a site of opportunity. And I think that, um, you know, as much as, right, there's it, this excitement about emancipation and, and these hopes that when you get to D.C., that um, that that will automatically apply to you. There's also the the, the scarcity created by the war. There's poverty, um, and there is danger um, in entering either the sex and leisure, you know, uh, commerce, or you know, just trying to survive, right? Um, because they're still being policed, and they're being policed by Union soldiers and local local folks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This question is from Sherry Mackinson. Sorry, Mackinson, excuse me. Can you talk more about the sex and leisure economy and black women's choices to engage in this economy to make ends meet? How mm-hmm. does that relate to still being enslaved? I'm also thinking of how contemporary anti-sex trafficking efforts use the language of modern-day slavery. Mm. That's a very interesting question. It's So it's, you know, Sometimes, the, you know, the way that we write and think about black women's history, you know, it really is about the sources. Um, and, you know, I argue in the book that, you know, to exclude, you know, black women engaged in the sex and leisure economies would, would render them generically absent because they, they were everywhere, um, particularly before the war, you know, and then, of course, during the war. Um, and what that really tells us is about, you know, the social, the economic mobility of black women, what is available to them, what is possible um, for them in order to survive. Um, the question that I had, um, uh, you know, with the book was, if black, women, once, if black women ever become free, then what? What do you do? You know, does everybody become Elizabeth Keckley? Does everybody become, you know, uh, this black woman organizer, you know, who's mobilizing her politics and, you know, fighting for abolition and, and women's suffrage? And the truth of the matter is that the majority of black women are not doing that. Um, they're trying to survive. Um, and some of them actually find um, ways to um, have very, very lucrative um, enterprises. Um, and they can range from um, having, um, having, having, you know, just working on your own to having establishments where there's lots of women working under your charge. Um, there are some that um, are kind of parlor style that give sort of a particular kind of class experience, particularly to high-paying clients. There are some, you know, black women who just are renting out their room, you know, and, and this, is, this is what's fascinating and why it's important to center the stories of these women some women are going to church and then they're coming back and opening up their house for whatever, you know, the sex and leisure economy is willing to pay, right? And so it really complicates 
how we think about the lives of uh, the economic lives in particular, in, in particular of black women. And for some, it's a short-term strategy, and for some, it's a long-term strategy. And for those for whom it is a long-term strategy, they find it to be, they find it to be lucrative, right? And so um, I, I think it, it tells us that the path for black women once they secured legal freedom, particularly before the war, um, meant that there were very, very narrow, limited options available to them. And so sex work became common. Um, and it became common among white women as well. If you were a single white woman, you know, what were the paths that you could take? But for black women in particular, right, um, they experienced this, this tight, um, this, this very narrow um, path to uh, mobility and survival. Thank you. This is another question from Edgar Randolph. How was language used in the marginal setting of Washington? Servants in the North were servants um, or employees. Southern servants were slaves, not servants. Where, mm-hmm. do, where do Washingtonians fit in? I think it's interesting because um, many many people, um, many I saw particularly in the records I looked at, um, Elite white people like to refer to enslaved people as servants, um, right? And I don't know if it was this kind of, like this kind of aristocratic or, you know, genteel sensibility that would, you know, prevent them from saying slave um, as much. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the things the book looks at is how this sort of parallel um, development of there's an emerging white class um, particularly steeped in politics and power in D.C. And alongside that, right, are the enslaved people who help, you know, who are supporting that image through their labor, right? And um, and so some people use the, the word servants. And, and it was interesting, you know, when I read um, the piece about um, the slave trading firms, you know, their advertisements, you know, would say, well, how's your servants very comfortably, right? Um, and so it's it's very interesting um, to see that kind of, um, that language being used interchangeably while also being applied to, you know, people who are coming from the North and even, you know, uh, European immigrants who serve as uh, servants as well. Um, that, that distinction isn't always made clear, um, but it's certainly made clear um, when you're looking at bills of sale, right, and you're looking at economic matters. Thank you. I want to see if there are any more questions. I don't see any, so I'll give it a couple more seconds. Thanks, Dr. Um, Nunley, for a wonderful presentation. Actually, it looks like we've got two more real quick, so I'll get okay. out my <laughs> Oh, just thank you. So these are, are oh, things that are coming you. from the audience, <laughs> so we really, really appreciate it. So, um, Thank you. We really appreciate it. I wish you could hear the applause. It was a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> talk. Uh, we hope for everyone in the audience that you can come back next week. Um, our speaker will be Richard Bowles from Oklahoma State University. Um, and uh, then I also want to remind people of our upcoming program. So please, hopefully, you can join us uh, this Thursday at 6 p.m. for our public dialogue in race and difference on the twin pandemics of COVID and racism. So thank you. I hope you have a great week, and we will see you later this week or next week. Have a great day. Welcome back. And that was uh, Professor Tamika Nunley uh, discussing her book on the threshold of liberty, uh, dealing uh, with the social status 
and labor uh, power of uh, African women in Washington, D.C., leading up to the Civil War and during the Civil War. And this is the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for today, uh, dealing with uh, International Women's History Month. We'll be right back. He is a hero. He walks with night. His spirit's beauty. His soul is right. His name is man. His face is black. And he would die for you to get your freedom back. He lives with danger. He lives with fear. He knows the chains that's how he came here. His life is hard. You know the facts. He'll really die for you to get your freedom back. When will you decide to know him, to show him that you understand? It's the least that you can say to the man. Every practice your way, you tell him easy. You said behave, and yet you can't see that you're a slave. He asks your help, no answer back. To get your freedom back, when will you decide to know him, to show him that you understand? It's the least that you can say to the man. As he passes your way, you tell him he's You said behave, and yet you can't see that you're a slave. He asks your help, no answer back to a man who died to get your freedom Welcome back, Elaine Brown uh, from the album Seize the Time. That one was called The Panther. And our final segment deals with the around this segment. From the fields of the antebellum South to the boardrooms of corporate America, the story of African-American women at work is one of the great untold narratives. It's a story of perseverance against the successive evils of slavery and bigotry, and it is a story of individual triumph and collective solidarity achieved against enormous odds. Above all, it is a vital chapter in American history, one that is still being written and one whose meaning is essential to all who would understand where we come from and where we may be going. My guest today is Sharon Harley, editor of Sister Circle, Black Women and Work, and associate professor in the Afro-American Studies program at the University of Maryland. Sharon Harley, welcome to Dialogue. Thank you very much. Now, Sharon, the origin of this work, like the uh, phrase Sister Circle, is intriguing. And so let's begin right there. I think it begins, does it not, with a group of... Um, young African-American women scholars who are sort of curious about work as uh, a phenomenon in their own lives and as a phenomenon in uh, the lives of other African-American women. Is that correct? Well, that actually uh, was a kind of a second motivation for the project and mm -hmm. the book's title, but initially it started with a potluck dinner at my house mm -hmm. in which we all got in a circle, thus the sister circle title, and in the process of each introduction, we were shocked and amazed to learn that 18 of the 21 women there was doing a research project on women's work broadly defined. Mm -hmm. 
and we said we should continue to meet and talk about this work. And five years later, six years later, we edited Sister Circle: Black Women in Work. Yeah, how would you characterize this, Sharon? This this is a you know, it's a fascinating sort of taking of an of an experience, collective experience of, of a group of women, and then with the result of a book. But the book's undertaken with what precise uh, idea in mind? I mean, what were you attempting to do? Well, initially we were uh, attempting to just meet once a month in a research seminar mm-hmm. to share ideas, get in input from different scholars. What's special and unique about the project and the book itself is that it's interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So they're historians, literary scholars, legal scholars, uh, anthropologists, historians. Right. So I think what's uh, what makes the book particularly uh, compelling to people is mm-hmm. that it's interdisciplinary and that we discussed our ideas over many years and we have these really well-written, fine-tuned essays right. that reflect our original research interests but also the input from scholars from different disciplines. Yeah, we're going to turn to those essays in some significant number in the course of our conversation. But I moved to ask you another question just occurred to me. Is um, using the... the um, uh, symbol of the circle mm-hmm. is the idea of this book, in a sense, uh, to to widen the circle, to bring others into this discussion. And the reason I think that occurs to me is that you use the word interactive. It is highly interactive. It's interactive not just between the writers and their subjects, but also in a time sense, historical sense. It's interactive. Um, so I'm just wondering: is it written as much to provoke discussion as to bring understanding? I would, that's a very perceptive analysis because it was interactive on many, many levels. One is that we interacted with each other, but we so enjoyed the experience and how enriching it was that throughout every year we met, we'd always have a public forum. So we may have met in four or five different public arenas and opened up the discussion to people in the audience. So it was interactive in that sense. We wanted to be interactive because we wanted to be, go beyond the traditional scholar in the field right. to engage the thinking and the, uh, share the readership with book clubs. Mm-hmm. And so it was interactive, you know, in that sense. So we really did not want to write the traditional scholarly text mm-hmm. that may have a very small and very narrowly focused audience. We wanted a range of people to read the book. And then finally, I think we thought that it might provoke either some controversy, but certainly some conversation. Right. And well, let's look at some of these chapters and some of these essays. Uh, let's start right at the start, right, the, right at the um, beginning, a uh, very colorfully named first uh, chapter, Work at Sister, which has to do with the workplace itself, doesn't it? I mean, yes. like what goes on. In, in and the... we deliberately chose a, kind of what would not be a traditional scholarly uh, title mm-hmm. because we wanted to bring in an a, a new audience or enlarge our mm-hmm. readership beyond the university and to the book club right. uh, readership and maybe thinking Oprah Winfrey might even pick up this book. Well, that's the way to do it. You catch people's attention. There's <laughs> exactly, no question about it. Exactly. And another thing that catches people atten- people's attention is the very first essay, Tanya Lavelle Banks. And she goes into territory that's both interesting and challenging. I mean, talking about the way in which, quote, physical appearance standards act as a barrier to black women uh, in the workplace. I mean, the, the, the classic example is brought forth in this. Her essay for uh, are, uh, cornrows and, and braids, for example, for women who are um, in corporate 
uh, positions and then being censored by those corporations mm-hmm. for having that. And that, you know, that raises an extraordinary range of, of issues. Um, one of them, Sharon, that occurred to me is that the, the lack of seemingly effective legal recourse mm-hmm. where women caught up in that mm-hmm. bind. Well, Tanya Banks is one of the two legal scholars in the group, a distinguished law professor at the University of Maryland. And uh, here again, she suggests the complexity of black women's work lives. It isn't one in which they're defined by either just gender or by racial identity, but how physical appearance, and this, of course, runs across racial lines. Um, And so she's looking at what happens in in a workplace in which people, in particular, uh, black women are discouraged from wearing cornrows. And then she moves, um, quite interestingly, to another issue which has not been addressed, but which several of our essays look at, and that's the whole issue of skin color difference in African-American communities and the implications. Colorism. For, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so so um, it's not just about gender or race, but it is, unfortunately, mm-hmm. often about one's physical appearance. Yeah. I thought it was it was really um, uh, provocative because, as you say, it did go from related to very obviously related subjects, but colorism, mm-hmm. that is to say the hierarchy of color tones mm-hmm. within the black community, has been kind of a, um, uh, well, I would classify it as an embarrassment, quite frankly, yeah. um, historically yes. within the black community, not much talked about. Yeah. It certainly has been pretty taboo, in, except for in a few scholarly mm-hmm. um, examinations, probably more prevalent in uh, literary uh, representations, novels, and short stories. But if we're serious about examining black women's work, we cannot overlook this as an issue in how black women live their lives. And as it turns out, what's particularly provocative about this essay, it involves two African-American women in a legal uh, battle Mm -hmm. because uh, one alleges that the other was unkind and mistreated her and didn't support her because of the difference in their skin color tones. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite interesting. The one who sues uses the the legal uh, the the legal cases that were used and the law that was used to prevent uh, racial discrimination. She uses it to say that she was discriminated against because of her skin color, by another African-American woman who was her boss. Bonnie Thornton Dill and Talise Johnson, uh, in their uh, joint essay, their jointly written essay, introduce us to the plight of poor black women in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, And plight, I think, is the right word, because these women are uneducated, subject to all sorts of coercion, including Mm -hmm. sexual coercion. Um, The stories, however, do suggest to me, uh, Sharon, that well, first of all, they're evocative as to how important the family is, how important some sense of community is. Do you get that impression? Very much so. And I think uh, what they address is a number of stereotypes about welfare recipients. We just have just gross and unfair uh, generalizations about welfare recipients. So she does a series of interviews and oral histories and case studies looking at welfare recipients in, in the rural community because mm-hmm. we often think about welfare recipients as being urban-based, but she looks at them in rural Mississippi and looks at the ways in which, like the other women we have uh, examined in the book, how they employ various strategies to overcome their struggle and how it's not a question of welfare versus wage work. Often they have jobs, but they're low-income jobs, they're seasonal jobs, and they use welfare 
as a supplement. This was a very timely essay because as she was writing it, it was in the midst of uh, various pieces of legislation about welfare and, and mm-hmm. uh, from welfare to work, which yeah. needs a whole other <laughs> series of, of essays. Yeah. Let me take a moment from our conversation just to say that this is Dialogue, a presentation of the Woodrow Wilson Center. I'm George Liston, CA, and my guest is Sharon Harley, editor of Sister Circle, Black Women and Work. Let's talk about your own essay. Um, This is really, well, it's not just because you're present company, but it's one of my favorites. uh, The Other Path is a women who work in the underground economy of the early 20th century, the underground economy, to be uh, candid here, and as bootleggers, numbers backers, and, and uh, the institution of, of uh, the uh, business of prostitution. And the subject is the very colorful, very successful Odessa Marie Madre. Tell people what she did. Well, she uh, was a very successful numbers backer. That's sort of the legal uh, betting on numbers pre-legal uh, lotteries. And she ran uh, various uh, gambling dens. She sold bootleg liquor. And she also had a house of ill repute, which you know was involved, involving prostitution. But she was so successful at it that she was known often as the Al Capone of Washington, D.C. And this was a, a kind of a, a job or a work area in which males had dominated. So she was very unique, not only in that she was a successful businesswoman in these enterprises, but that she was sort of at the top of the game, as it were. Right. And... Uh, She's a very, very fascinating woman. Here, I want somebody to do a screenplay, right? Because she's a fascinating woman. I mean, you would think uh, a woman who was smart, who had gone Mm -hmm. to the very prestigious Dunbar High School, came from a family with with, uh, property and some business background and professional family members, that she would have gone on, like many Dunbar graduates, to to teach. And that was the, uh, the occupation that, mainly available and only available, well, main, the only occupation that black women um, could could have a professional position was as teachers. But she didn't want to be a teacher. And through a whole series of fascinations with the uh, life of the kind of the fast life that, uh, that she was around her in the neighborhood where she grew up, she became interested in having a kind of her own uh, business, gambling and the like. Yeah. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, she remembered her days at Dunbar as being particularly painful. She was a darker-skinned African-American woman, and uh, she remembered being teased, not only because of her skin color, but also because she herself says I wasn't particularly attractive. And so she used uh, the money she probably got from her parents. She used her own bravado and sense Mm -hmm. of herself and and courageously went into a field that she found both success, exciting and uh, lucrative. Yeah, and she had to, in doing that and being successful at it, and she had counterparts in other mm-hmm. cities. Sure. And, um, one thinks, well, New Orleans and, mm-hmm. and right. even the North, uh, Detroit and so forth. Uh, but you had to be tough mm-hmm. and you had to be a first-rate executive. Right. Uh, there's no question about it. What is also interesting about her, and this is, I don't know the answer to this question, of course, but I think this might be very, very uh, intriguing. What was her relationship with the larger community? Because now here you have a successful woman doing 
um, the demi monde, you know, the other the tenderloin, the other side of the, of the street, um, but doing it very, very successfully. What's the effect of that on the larger community? Well, that's a good question. I think if we put it in the context of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. I would think that she she had a relationship with the business community because like many other people in this line of work she had a legitimate business right. which was a nightclub called club madre where um, count basie and uh, uh, joe lewis and other moms maybe uh, frequent her her um her nightclub and so she obviously had some relationship with that element of the black community she had contact with poor working class black families in her neighborhood because she often gave them money. I think her relationship with the probably the black professional elite was m- maybe probably the more strained of those relationships mm-hmm. because um, while people understood that in many cases this was the only way black people could make money and, and poor ethnic communities could make money, um, I think that people probably, uh, the the religious, the kind of the most religiously conservative African Americans and the black professional elite, she may not have been looked at in the right. most positive light. Yeah, those uh, well, men and women alike in this sense. I'm thinking back to my own time in Buffalo, New York, uh, and the numbers runners who were often the richest people around uh, and the toughest, and uh, ended up being in a kind of behind the scenes way. Uh, the go-to guys for a lot of things that were done, but not brought up front. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I um, I was re- I wasn't reluctant to write this essay mm-hmm. because I wanted to write about all aspects of African American women's work, mm-hmm. but there was some concern expressed when the seminar met and I presented my my essay mm-hmm. because people were concerned about what were the implications of writing about a woman like this would people see african-american people in a negative light you know make gross generalizations and i uh certainly couldn't i didn't feel the same concern that other people had because i knew there were people like adessa madri in many communities and they they weren't all african-american people but oftentimes these were the people who behind the scenes supported civil rights struggles, political struggles. They were the ones who would put money in in the church basket. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who often would send people off to college. And when I have presented my essay in the book to a public audience and I talk about the reluctance and the concern I have about writing about a person like this, several people, including people in the seminar, came up to me afterwards and said, Oh, I went to Harvard, and my grandmother ran a numbers yeah. game, and I bought my books at Harvard from the money my grandmother sent me. The next um, uh, essay I want to cite is my is a personal heartbreaker. Um, and I think you pointed out quite mm-hmm. rightly at the beginning, these are stories of, of triumph on many levels, and yet there is a great sadness that people even had to contend against these things. Francil Roussan, is it? Wilson? Roussan. Roussan Wilson's uh, poignant essay on Sadie Moselle Alexander. Sadie Moselle Alexander is the first black woman to achieve a doctorate in economics in 1921. I think it was from University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, but in any event, and here's what's important, racism and sexism combine to keep her from using it. I think she ends up working for, gets a law degree after mm-hmm. that, I think, and works for her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, that This has to be a devastating comment on racism, because I mean, here you have someone who's done... It all, mm-hmm. and yet can't do any of it, mm-hmm. not allowed to do any right. of it. 
Yeah, she uh, received her Ph.D. from the Wharton School in economics and can't find a job mm-hmm. in her field. In fact, her one of her professors at the Wharton School was so upset about this mm-hmm. that he refused to recommend any of his students to the firms that re- that that refused to hire her. And she ended up working as an actuary at the North the black-owned North Carolina Mutual Insurance Association. And then she comes back and gets a law degree, and mm-hmm. no law firm would, would pick mm-hmm. up this very pre- this very smart person with this very prestigious degree. So she ends up working with, with, in a husband's law firm, but not in the big lucrative uh, cases. She ends up, not surprisingly, working in the domestic arena, family, divorce cases, and the mm-hmm. like. But George, you'll be happy to know that in a, in this essay and in a larger uh, essay for a new book we're working on, uh, Professor Wilson talks about how Sadie reconstructed herself as the woman of the year and would promote herself, probably because people never fully recognized her uh, for her professional attributes. And so she would position herself in photographs and at forums as the first of everything. And uh, you'd also, I think, be happy to know that there's a large picture of her at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So she is finally getting her due, but she uh, was not uh, overwrought by her failure to uh, get her rightful professional place. She promoted herself Mm -hmm. and uh, considered herself on par with the the Giants wherever. And uh, Professor Wilson has a a photographic uh, talk that she does of images of... uh, uh, Sadie Alexander, where Sadie positions herself always in the center and the front, even dresses in a way that would draw attention to her. And uh, she had a certain picture that she would use um, to promote the youthful Sadie mm-hmm. Alexander. So I think this essay underscores what we're trying to say throughout the book, is mm-hmm. that these women had uh, various challenges, mm-hmm. but they developed strategies to try yeah. to address them. Well, she might be the most colorful example of all, but it, but uh, the qualities you've suggested, uh, that you've outlined for her, uh, must have been to some degree part of all of them. I mean, it, 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 these are strong people. Right. Don't quit. Right. Deborah Willis acquaints us with the difficulties faced by uh, black women artists. And I, um, this is a vast topic, but given the constraints of time, let me see if I can target a question. It'll just get, get at least one aspect of it out. Um, when I think of black artists in general and black women artists in particular, whatever the field may be, it occurs to me that um, one of the one of the pillars of uh, of, of segregation, of, of certainly of slavery, of segregation, bigotry, has been to deny intellectual activity. Uh, and of which artistic expression is, you know, the, uh, one of the most uh, exquisite uh, aspects. Which seems to me that the, the the path of the black woman artist has to be must have been an especially hard one. To, to yeah, I, yeah, I I think that is true. I think um, what Debbie Wilson and she's just a very distinguished um, scholar of black photography and a MacArthur Award recipient. Mm-hmm. Um, she does several things for this book. She not only brings her own experience as an artist, as a noted photographer, but as a scholar of the field. And and it has been particularly difficult, and it has been difficult by what we described earlier, the issue of racism and, and, and sexism and the like. And it's also been difficult not only 
because there's often not been an avenue for black women artists to have their work presented to museums and the like. But also they, what Debbie does is look at the images of mm-hmm. black women, often negative, stereotypical, and she offers a kind of critical analysis of what those images represent right. and, and the like. So it's a multifaceted aspect of looking at visual representation. And, and when you put it that way, it reminds us on how many fronts the battles are waged. Right. I mean, it's not just to get the jobs, it's what you're thought of mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, uh, what you have to fight to be allowed to do. Um, if the artistic realm faced its special constraints, Sharon, I'm wondering, at some risk of asking this because I don't know, but uh, I'm wondering if the religious arena is a freer form. Mm-hmm. And um, I moved to say that because Judy Moore Latta, and a, a colorfully titled When the Spirits Take Takes Hold, What the Work Becomes, introduces Sister Leona Davis and Donna Sam's Heart to us, women who are gospel singers, evangelists, and educators. And uh, I've just always had a perception of the church. Um, I guess this is, it was the church a place where you could you could express yourself, move ahead, and, and realize yourself in ways uh, that might have been easier than elsewhere. Well, you could realize yourself, but you couldn't try to be the minister. Well, that's right, too. <laughs> you could realize yourself, but you probably couldn't be on the uh, policy-making mm-hmm. trustee board mm-hmm. until very, very recently. Uh, this is a wonderful uh piece because uh, it underscores several things about the book, that work isn't just about wage work. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways in which black women have engaged in work uh, for for many centuries is in their community work, particularly in the church. So this essay suggests that we clearly see work in a non-wage uh, earning capacity and these women were spiritual workers. Mm-hmm. They worked not only to uh, finance the church, but also do this very important spiritual work of the community. I think uh, it's particularly salient for African-American communities to look at church women in their work lives. And I think you're right. It has, even though the women don't often occupy the leadership positions, but it does empower them to mm-hmm. get out and be in the public arena. Mm-hmm. Well, Sharon, it's a remarkable book, and as we conclude this conversation, the obvious question is where do we go from here? What is uh, ahead of us? Uh, you mentioned earlier you are uh, at now currently at work on the very next uh, book. You know, I'm moved to reflect that this, these are extraordinary times we're in. We have, I think, more than one um, black woman who's the CEO of a Fortune 500 com- company these days, which is extraordinary in itself. But at the same time, of course, we have... Dep- um, situations in our inner cities that are keeping young African-American women from even uh, dreaming of that. Um, This is the age of globalization uh, relating to the world at large. And I'm just wondering, what's your sense of, uh, has the the challenge to black women changed because of all these factors? Or does what has been true remain true? I I think it's just shifted. I don't, you know, I think, um, well, several things. One is, um, yes, where do we go from here? Mm I actually am now hitting a seminar like this one on working lives of women of color in which I have seminar participants who do research and who themselves are Native American, African American, Latino, Asian American, a Caribbeanist, and a white woman who writes about white and Afro-Cuban women. Mm -hmm. So our next book, we'll we'll look at that. But but, um, 
I also am developing a project on African and women's labor studies in which I am trying to address some of the issues you've raised. I'm trying to develop projects in which I go to various communities, um, often working class or poor communities, and describe the lives of successful black women entrepreneurs historically and in a contemporary context. So as to show young people how what values these people represent, uh, the skills and strategies they use to succeed, because I don't think personally it's enough to have a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or two or three, and if there's so much uh, um, poverty and disparity in various communities. So right. my vision is that I'll have a project, uh, actually I'm writing proposals uh, this week, mm -hmm. to get foundation support for various projects in which I take the strength that's represented in these essays and share them with not just the book clubs, but with youth groups and mm -hmm. family groups throughout um, poor neighborhoods to say these people overcame these obstacles, they needed these skills, and then have a way to teach those skills. Right. But in the global context, those skills have to be taught with computers and various forms of technology. Yeah. But we got to combine kind of a value system and technical skills, I would think. I think that's true, and I think it's another example of combining the theoretical and the practical, the scholarly and the nitty-gritty. Uh, um, <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Sharon Harley. They're my pleasure. You have been listening to Dialogue. My guest today was Sharon Harley, Associate Professor in the African American Studies Program at the University of Maryland and editor of Sister Circle, Black Women and Work. I'm George Liston C.A., producer and host of Dialogue. Our technical director is John Tyler. Our production engineer is Anthony Barber. Our production assistant is Megan Conway. And our associate producer is Rachel Edmonds. Dialogue is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Established by Congress in 1968, the center is our nation's official and living memorial to the 28th President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson.